Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Mike Musburger. Mike has spent his life and career in Seattle, where he has played in a long list of bands and projects. In the 90s, he enjoyed some big label-slash-world touring success as the drummer for the Posies. More recently, he was part of Paul Allen's traveling on-call band and tours on Ringo's live production crew. He also records in his own studio, housed in Seattle's most famous rehearsal space, The Institution. Our Patreon content now features our recent guest, Pat Petrillo, discussing the recording of his version of Black Cow for his new record. We've also got lots of other drummers on that Patreon series, including Ash Sohn and Will Kennedy, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash workingdrummer. I met up with Mike when I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and he served as somewhat of a guide to the past and present of that city, from music to food to larger infrastructural aspects. He knows the place inside and out, and it was great to get a snapshot of not just his career path, but also the place it is inextricably linked to. We also bonded over our love for our mutual friend Ty Bailey, or more accurately, our love of busting on Ty Bailey. So here we go. Hope you dig Mike Musburger. So we're here because of Ty Bailey. Yes, we are. Um, and I, I think the only person that I know who has known Ty longer than you is his wife, Emily. Yes, and probably. she doesn't have any answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I you know, know, I could get a room full of people in here to, to try to get some answers for everyone out I'm there sure, who's curious. I'm sure you could. <laughs> Um, but I was, I was texting with Ty and, and, you know, I said, I'm in Seattle. Who do I, who do I talk to? And, and you were at the top of the list. So here we are. Yeah. Um, and I asked him to, uh, I asked him to, to load me up with some, some questions and topics specifically for you. Um, so here, here's what he came back with and I'm, I'm just going to fire these off okay. and, and you can start where, where you see fit. Okay. Let's see what he does. Let's see what he has for me. <laughs> Thanks Ty. Uh, okay. So, uh, what was it like to have the rocket newspaper say you're the next drummer for Pearl Jam. 
<laughs> what is it like to owe Ty Bailey your life for rescuing you from being abandoned on an abandoned airstrip in Kenya? That is that is so full of so many fallacies. I don't even know where to begin. Oh, there's the drummer next there's, door. All right, there's the drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Frosting on the beater is a masterclass in power pop punk rock drumming. How do you like them apples? All right. I don't know about <laughs> punk rock, but power pop for sure. Yeah, classic uh, rock. It's very Keith Moon. <laughs> Um, and then lastly, he just said Ringo's potatoes. <laughs> yes. Ringo's potatoes. Yeah. We can talk about that too. Okay. So, I mean, we, we can start anywhere you want or just disregard Ty for the remainder no, no, of, of this just, interview. Let's just go with those. Those are good. Those are, those are uh, you know, clearly uh, talking points about like, certain parts of my career. I mean, sure. you, you seem to have led a sort of Forrest Gumpian existence by, by Ty's account here. There, yeah. You, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not very good at um, talking about myself and, and all that, but um, I have been, you know, playing drums professionally, semi-professionally since the late 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in a band that was got signed to a major label in, in that heyday and did a lot of touring and was on MTV and in Rolling Stone and all, all so the stuff that goes along with it. That was, was the posies, right? That was the posies, yeah, yeah when yeah. I was really young. But, you know, that's kind of a loaded thing now with what's happened recently with um, one of the, our members of that band. Um Anyway, uh, and yeah, and ever since then, that's sort of just snowballed into a whole lot of different things. I mm -hmm. got involved in the production side. Um, I ended up working for Paul Allen, which Ty also did. We kind of started doing that together. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, whole yeah. Experience. I mean, NDAs have been signed, but I can't talk about it to, <laughs> to in an abstract sense right. for sure. Um, and yeah, I've just that. It's funny that it is very Forrest Gumpy, and I've been a fly on the wall. Literally a fly on the wall for a lot of things over the last 30 plus years. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't, you know, people don't really ask me about it. And I don't, I have not, you know, I haven't, I'm not in the grunge book textbooks, you know. <laughs> you know nobody's <laughs> interviewed me for the, the history of Seattle music, but I was around for all of that and had a front row seat and was in a popular band and friends with a lot of those people and uh, still am. And so, yeah. you know, so yeah. Um, <laughs> Forrest Gump, good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, gosh, where to start? What was that first one? That the you... first, the first one was, um, uh, oh, <laughs> what was it like having the Rocket newspaper say oh. you're the next drummer for <laughs> Pearl Jam? <laughs> All right, this is a good story, um, and it's you know, sure, I would have loved to have been in Pearl Jam. Um, so in what year was that? Ninety four, late ninety four, when I quit the Posies, um, I uh, um, uh, my stock was rather high. I think at, you know, when I look back in hindsight, I think my stock as a player was somewhat high, and I was searching for the next gig yeah and i went to la a bunch and kind of talked to a bunch of people and you know people who worked at geffen the posies label were you know trying to help me maybe find a gig and and i ended up not really being into a whole lot of stuff that came my way um and uh you know there's a bunch of stuff that happened during like a six-month period where i talked to uh i was you know considered maybe for the afghan wigs needed a drummer juliana hatfield was looking for a drummer I had been jamming with Dave Grohl and after he had recorded the first Foo Fighters record mm -hmm. for like about a month in November of 94 and uh, kind of thought I might be his next drummer in his next project, the mm -hmm. Foo Fighters, yeah. for a little while and then that, that went away. Um, God, what else was there? I think there was a possible Counting Crows audition. Um, uh, Beck, there was a Beck audition that I didn't ever get actually, but um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was just sort of like very lukewarm irons in the fire for me right, I ended up right. playing in a local band called Love Battery who had gotten signed to A&M and was their major label record so I did a touring cycle for them yeah. they were friends they had a budget it seemed to make the most sense for me I wouldn't have to move to LA um, but um, so 
God, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Pearl Jam. Yeah. Pearl Jam. So I went um, at the end of '94. I went to Bali with my roommate just for a vacation. Wow. Just to, just to I, you know, clear my head, and I went to Bali for a month. You know. Yeah. It was you know back then it was really cheap. Right. You know, the biggest thing you're spending spending money on was airfare, and I had freaking flyer miles, having toured for five six years prior to that pretty constantly. Yeah. Um, so while I was in Bali, unbeknownst to me. My roommate's girlfriend ends up at a bar with the editor of The Rocket magazine, Charlie Cross, and drunkenly tells him that she thinks I'm going to be the next drummer in Pearl Jam, which I don't know where she got that. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. I was completely oblivious. I knew they were looking for a drummer. I think I knew that uh, Dave was gone and they hadn't hired anyone yet. And... Um, I was, I, you know, I wouldn't say I was interested. I just didn't think that they would ever ask me or anything. Uh-huh. But I came home, and in the Rocket Magazine, every there's a there's a column was called uh, Johnny Renton, and it was basically the gossip column. Yeah. And there was a line in it that it says it looks like I'm going to be the next drummer in Pearl Jam, and <laughs> I, you know, I was mortified because I didn't do that. <laughs> it had nothing to do with it. I didn't know about it. Right. You know, I it was way after the fact that I found out that it was my roommate's girlfriend who did this, and I don't. Like I said, I don't know where it came from or how that happened, but it was all go- happened while I was literally on the other side of the planet. Oh man! <laughs> and, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed and everything. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I reached out to their manager Kelly Curtis and said, you know, I apologize. I had nothing to do with that. You know, because like, back then the, you know, was, this town was very political, like all music scenes are when they're in their early days are pretty political. And I just, you know, apologized that I don't, I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm sorry. But by the way, I, I can get an audition. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could sure. have something to do with yeah, it. Yeah, but you know, I, I think Jack Irons had the gig by then. So right, you know, and it's funny, you know, in, in the years since, you know, I've played with Mike McCready a bunch. I've played with Stone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so and I've even done some stuff with Ed um, on stage. You know, doing some Who covers with Ed right. over the years. It's been years since we've done that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like in. In the 90s at that time, I mean, you mentioned the politics and Mm -hmm. this, you know, this is not a big town. No. I mean, it's bigger now than it ever was, but uh, the music scene was always very, very small. And it still kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. It seems seems that way. Yeah. Even with the younger generation, there's, because there's definitely a a thing going on right now in this town with the 20, 30 year olds. It's, there's a a thing. There's another thing? There's There's a thing again? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of local bands that draw pretty well. Really? There's a scene for sure that's coalesced around a bunch of bands and a bunch of particular people and stuff wow so is that is that sort of the um it's generational it happens you know it's happened before you know it happened you know 10 15 years ago with the hip-hop thing here right okay so garage rock what the kids are calling psych these days is definitely on his his back (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) which is great and does this does this uh differ from shoegaze in some way yeah it's a little yeah it's it's very different than shoegaze it's it's more like 60s rock and roll oh so like yeah yeah yeah. dig it dig it so it, have you found that um, Seattle sort of just, I mean, you mentioned it's generational. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't know that other cities sort of recycle the scene mm-hmm. in a regular way yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it, it has ebbed and flowed here. And I am certainly have had long periods of time where I have not really been present or involved because of my age and what else I was doing in my life right? Um, in in our local Seattle music scene. But I always come back to it. And there's still a lot of the same people, and the same players, and the same similar infrastructure over the years. You know, the clubs, booking agents, you know. I mean, people, it, it evolves and pe- more people come in and people retire. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, it's a small town still in, in that in that regard. Yeah. And there's now a legacy here because of the grunge thing and the hip hop thing that got really big. Um, that really has you know it's there's a thing here. Right. Bands people come here to get their bands off the ground or their music careers started. Right. And then they go. <laughs> and, I mean, it's it's good to it's good to know that that um, Seattle. I, I think for a little while it was just sort of resting on the grunge. Yeah. Legacy. Yeah, and it still does to. A, great degree but you know i i think younger people don't i mean they get it gets pounded in their heads and over their heads with the grunge thing and how we owe you know so much to that but it's true and if you were around back then it was truly a crazy out of control global phenomenon yeah you know and it started here in this small little fucking town right with a very small group of people right who a lot of them are still around (laughs) so as i mean as someone who is part of that with the with the politics and the headiness of it Mm -hmm. um how did you navigate that, and how did that sort of inform the rest of your career from a from a business acumen oh, standpoint? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I you know honestly, I mean, I had a front row seat for all of it, but and I certainly benefit, but you know, I'm not one of those guys who has mailbox money or anything right. like that. And then you know, none of the bands I played in ever got you know giant success like mm-hmm. those guys. Posies did all right. I made a living doing it while I was doing it. But they never had any kind of crossover success. I mean, we did well in certain parts of the world, um, you know, and I had great experiences. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm very lucky. But, uh, you know, and the Posies weren't a grunge band. We were not a grunge band. Mm-hmm. You know, we were kind of more of a traditional rock and roll band. Two guitars, bass and drums, song, focus on songwriting, traditional songwriting, harmonies, melodies, you know. Um, yeah. So it was, we were just a very different thing, you know. Um, and kind of got eclipsed by the the grunge thing a little bit in hindsight. You know? yeah. At the time, you know, it's like wow, our our city is really getting a lot of attention because of stuff, and it was benefiting us. But in the long run, we got totally eclipsed by it. Right, right. <laughs> and like you mentioned before, we started recording. You mentioned a couple other bands. What, what was the one that became Ministry? Oh, uh, the Blackouts. That's like you know a generation before. That was the eighties. Okay. You know, yeah, Bill Rieflin, and and yeah. then there was also like Mud Honey. Yeah, Mud Honey's still around. Actually, they have a new Are record they really? coming. Yeah, actually, they have a record coming out next month. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> and they're like, you know, consider, I would call them not the first grunge band, but they were, you know, I think, you know, this, you can make all sorts of arguments. What, the, what was the first Seattle grunge band? Right. What, Green River, the U-Men or whatever. Um, probably some I not even mention, can't even think of right now. But uh, Mud Honey is, you know, they started in 1988. Same year the Posey started, actually. Yeah. And uh, well, I guess I'm just thinking in terms of like, you know, when when you think of just the the Seattle grunge thing, it's mm-hmm. Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Sound Garden. Yeah, and Soundgarden and, existed in '88. They started, in, I think, '86. Actually, '86 or '87. Right. And and the point being that like this this wasn't a phenomenon that just came out of no. nowhere. No, it, it, took it years. grew out of like the fertile ground of oh, these, yeah. these other yeah. bands yeah. that it. Then yeah, yeah things morphed into one thing or another. You know, Green River, Mud Honey, uh, 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 you know, turns into Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam. That and, one, right. You know, it's, all, it's <laughs> all a lot of the same players and whatnot. And you know, I just sort of I was around watching it all, right. <laughs> going to those shows and seeing those bands play. Well, yeah, and I mean, you weren't just watching it; you were part of it as part I was. of the Posies. Yeah, um, I mean, our band didn't do bills. We didn't share too many bills with a lot of those bands. A few, a few times, like mm-hmm. at the University of Washington, we had a couple all ages things. But you know, we definitely sort of. We're just a kind of musically a different thing, mm-hmm. you know. In fact, we were a little bit derided locally because of it, because we were not not 
you know that huh. yeah yeah <laughs> but you not, know not how, orthodox enough <laughs> well yeah yeah not falling in line enough for for the grunge but you know is that's how the audience sees it but uh you yeah. know i i like that kind of music i still do sure and and every genre has its police oh yeah you know exactly. like i i'm yeah. i'm most familiar with the jazz police yeah you know because yeah. i think <laughs> there was the grunge police for sure <laughs> there definitely was i think the, the jazz police are, are maybe some of the most orthodox but you yeah. know there's yeah. the blues police there's the grunge police there's yes. the... the blues lawyers <laughs> uh, uh, but you know uh, to, to the rest of your questions about how that informed the rest of my musical my my so i guess career um you know i i got to start seeing the world from a musical atmosphere touring uh and was addicted to it for mm-hmm. years um and also trying to understand what my worth was in that world. Yeah. Because that's a tough one for a lot of musicians. Like, I want to do this. I love this. But, you know, is how, how do I get paid? What do I get paid? What do, what do I feel comfortable asking? What's available? You know? Right. And I, and a lot of times I think I sold myself very short because mm-hmm. that's what musicians tend to do because they just feel it's just a luxury to get to do what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and then they're like, oh, great. Free beer and dinner. Great. Per diem. But, um, you know, it it was a long road for me to sort of understand what my worth was and, right. and try to get there <laughs> hell on the turnpike tonight in the scrutiny of the headlights and in the eyes of our friends there's a city of roses Talk about this space we're in a little bit. This is a, you have a studio in in what appears to be this rabbit's warren of uh, yeah. No, I'm, I have a room in a in a place called the Institution here in Seattle. It's a very very long long running rehearsal complex, two stories. There's a ton of rooms in here. In fact, Mud Honey used to have a room right down the hall. <laughs> when we first walked in, that first room on the right was theirs during wow. pretty much all the '90s. Yeah, um, lots of bands had spaces in here. Um, I didn't have a rehearsal space for years because most of what I was doing playing wise there were the, whatever the, the the gig was there was a space to go practice so I didn't have my own mm-hmm. and then the pandemic happened and there was nothing happening and I live in this neighborhood and I, I went for a walk one day in you know spring of 2020 and walked by this building and went oh yeah this place is still here and called up the management and they had rooms available and they were cutting deals because people had been fleeing left and right and you know they, they don't own the building they got a lease they got to pay too so my friend tim and i ended up moving into this room because both of us live in apartments and condos and couldn't you know we didn't have a space to make noise Mm -hmm. and we were both kind of going crazy and so we moved in here in you know spring and summer of 2020 and uh it's been great actually it's been really cool to have a place to go play and just you know 
most of the things that I've done for the last 20 plus years have all been um, goal oriented. Like I got a gig, I got these songs to learn. I got this recording session. I got songs to learn. You know, there's a, always a goal in mind. Yeah. And I never really just had time for like, just sort of free playing. Um, and I, you know, it was a revelation because I hadn't done it in years. Like, Oh, I can go down there and just mess around and play drums, right. play along to whatever I want or just work on stuff. And it actually took a few months to, before I actually got comfortable with it because I had not done it in so long. Right. Because it had all been so goal-oriented. Like, oh, and it, it helped sort of dust off some chops that I had kind of lost uh -huh. or just didn't, you know, tickling things that I hadn't touched in a long time as a player. Right. And, uh, and so I think my friend Tim, guitar player, had the, had a lot of the same experiences and come down here and crank up and play yeah, and, yeah. and really kind of just get better, you know? So did I that relied on skills for a long time. I'd rested on like right. established skills for a long time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, how did that, uh, sort of recalibrate your, your priorities as a player? Um, um because we talk yeah. a lot about how just, you know, the pandemic sort of by nature, uh, sort of smashed everybody's priorities and, yeah. and everybody came out of it with a different value system. Oh, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm definitely, you know, I'm even here all these years later, I'm still kind of dealing with the fallout of the whole thing, you know, personally, professionally, like what, what, who am I? What do I do? Yeah. Why, why do I do this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, if, initially for me, it was just, it was, uh, it was pleasurable to realize that, oh, I, I can do more than I thought I could. And I can push myself at my later age and I can learn new things. I can, I can, and wow, I'm actually maybe a better player than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, I'm pretty self deprecating about my own abilities. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm the greatest drummer in the world. <laughs> I know I can do some things, but there's a lot of things I can't do. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was really fun to, to really push that. Yeah. And how did it, how did it affect your, goals moving forward well uh you know as you looked around here you, you can see all this recording gear that i've ended up investing in in the last couple of years you know uh, you know interfaces and microphones and, and whatnot and and it really sparked my desire to learn how to record myself and engineer and you know learn logic and you know yeah. being able to provide drum tracks for people right and i've done a little of it not a ton i mean this last year i was so busy touring that i, I just physically wasn't in this space that much because i was gone so much this last year um but i you know it was it it was a lot of fun to to go down that road and start recording things for friends and you know i didn't ever actually openly market myself to the world about mm -hmm. you know hire me to play on your tracks i, I probably could now mm -hmm. um you know but um, and that was kind of a goal to do a little bit of that. But yeah. ultimately, and with all the noise around, you can hear. Like, I need a better space to do it. Right. I'm off. Was often down here at three in the morning doing drum tracks. You yeah, know? that's, <laughs> that, that's was the here. time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, um, yeah, just and also the revel re revelation that though I was really enjoying learning more of the engineering aspects of it. Cause, you know, I've been making records and recording professionally in world class studios since the late '80s. Um, just kind of learning how to do it myself was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I also realized I really love the collaborative process of recording and of creating music. I like being in the room with other people, like yep. working with an engineer, working with a producer, trying to do it all yourself. And I think I'm not alone in this. It's a lot of hats to juggle. Like for trying sure. to track myself and do all the engineering and especially for drums because it's a lot of moving parts. It's daunting sometimes, and the yeah. performance often will take a back seat. <laughs> yeah. I have a good friend um, named Giuliano Mingucci, who's a, a great drummer, great mm -hmm. engineer. Uh, he's just sort of a Swiss army knife of a dude. Yeah. And he 
was a great resource to me when I embarked on this same journey yeah. around the same time you did. And yeah. one of the first things he told me was, just so you know, a drummer engineering themselves is like the least efficient way to record drums. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have proven that myself. You know, <laughs> spent a lot of money trying to figure that one out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did enjoy it though, and I did get to a, a sort of a, a working process um, with the gear that I have. Um, that that you know, for a period of time, there was fairly quick. You know, I got templates for everything. And, yeah, you know. and that's the thing. Like I've talked to so many folks, and everybody. You know, everybody finds their flow, they find mm -hmm. their process, they yeah. find the way that it works for them. Yeah. And it's still not as efficient as, you know, a drummer playing drums and an engineer, an engineer. engineering. Yeah. But I much prefer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course. But so, I think it's been good for me to learn uh, more about the actual process. Right. You know? I mean, I knew a lot, but I've learned a ton more. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, like, being so goal-oriented before mm -hmm. the pandemic, and yeah. I think a lot of us can relate to that. I certainly can. Yeah. And, you know, they're not even goals that you necessarily set for yourself. They yeah. just got put in front of exactly. you. Exactly. You got hired to do this thing. Right. And it's making you – it's paying you, so you got to go – you know, yeah. do the job. So, yeah. so coming out of the pandemic, I, I um, had the realization that the first 20 years of my career was just this endless litany of mostly one-offs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there had been, you know, some things that were longer, more involved, mm -hmm. cooler, whatever. But for mm -hmm. the most part, I was a hired gun. Yeah. Gig, 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 gig. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted the next 20 years of my career to be a much shorter list of much more sort of you know, longer lasting, more meaningful yeah, shit. Yeah, something that you can you can claim a little bit of ownership on. Right, yeah. right. Are, are you having the same Yeah, I'm actually coming back to that because my entire beginning of my career, the first 20, well, the first 10 years of my life was definitely band-oriented, mm -hmm. being in a band um, that had a record deal that made records and went on tour, and that was the focus. It wasn't one-offs. I didn't do weddings. I didn't do pickup gigs. Right. I, you know, I mean, I did sessions and stuff here and there, but I had a, a you know a focus. I had a band. Right. Um, did you grow up here? I did. Okay. I am, I'm one of the few natives left. Actually. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of jokes around that. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then you know, I um I. You know, later in life, I'm you know more of a hired gun. But I've honestly, in the last ten years, I've done more production work as a hired gun, drum mm. teching, yeah. that kind of thing, um, and a lot of it that's um, been you know somewhat lucrative. And you know, there's some good. I have some interesting, cool credits to my name for doing that. Mm -hmm. um, but the playing is, I haven't really been in a band, so to speak, that is you know career oriented that is making records and trying to get on tour and trying to you know further themselves i mean i make records with friends now and then and yeah. play shows locally with a host of different local singer songwriters and and it's you know it's it, it worked but as yeah as i'm coming out of this pandemic i'm realizing especially after the kind of production work i've been doing recently is like i should probably try to focus on playing and take it a little more seriously before i'm too old to actually do it hmm. anymore at all <laughs> Yeah, because I'm getting there. How old are you? I will be 55 on Saturday. Well, you look fucking fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Clean living, man. <laughs> ah, <laughs> not that clean. More cleaner lately than it has been in the past. That's for sure. Well, it's probably healthier since Ty left town. Uh, oh God. Yeah. Jeez. Oh my God. That guy is dangerous. I mean, we're all dangerous together. Believe me. There's a group of us that we have. We have a, da a very damning effect on each other when yeah. we're around each other. He he sent me it's he sent now. me a long list of you know things to do and eat and see yeah. in, in Seattle while I'm here and most of it 
was places to like eat junk food and or get drunk yeah. at two in the morning. Oh yeah, well, he's, 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 he excels at that. He's sure. quite good at it. And like up, up jogging the next morning. I don't, yeah, exactly. I don't he just sweats it out. I know he's up jogging every morning. He's, he's, he's an impressive human. <laughs> Not to speak of his skills as a keyboard player, because those are pretty impressive too. They're, they're really yeah, they're really pretty pretty good. Yeah, he yeah. good. That he's boy pretty, good. He's pretty good. Um, so in this in this room with your with your recording journey. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what what are some of the revelations or, or challenges um, uh, that that um, stick out to you as uh, as you've learned about just the <laughs> the wide world of recording drums? Well, good one. Um, that's actually I got a good one for that. Um, when I was younger in the analog recording era, um, which I did a lot of, in fact, most of my real recording experience, even now there's, I've got plenty in the more modern digital era, but I did a lot in the analog era. And that was to get a good take, you know, play it until you play it right, mm. not just edit it together. Yeah. Occasionally we would cut tape. Ah, oh, we like that bridge. We'll cut that in from that other take, you know, from playing to a click or whatever. So the whole idea of, you know, of Pro Tools and, and editing. You know, I've, my joke is that, you know, Pro Tools has been making me the drummer I know I can be for the last 20 years. <laughs> Maybe I'm not actually that day, but I know I can be. Right. Um, and as I got involved in this with Logic and the, the editing, uh, you know, learning the editing functions for, for drums and everything, it was a lot. And I'm not great at it. I, I learned the basics and I mm-hmm. can kind of do it. But it's just, I don't want to sit around and edit a bunch of shit. I don't either. So I, I really, when the things that I was starting to record, I wanted to get good takes. So I would just sit here and play take after take after take, like like I was when I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. and force myself just to play it till I played it right, so I wouldn't have to do any editing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that was challenging, because sometimes it took a lot yeah. for me, because I'm also, like we were talking about before, the distraction of trying to engineer and do everything and get a good performance out of yourself. If I was more comfortable with the editing, it would have gone a lot quicker because I would have just comped a bunch of takes together. But I wanted to get a good take from beginning, a good performance beginning to end. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And so was that goal um, like purely driven by the fact that you didn't want to sit around and edit? Or did you find that those complete takes actually sounded better, they, had had more of a vibe yeah, to them? They, they spoke to me a little bit more. Yeah. For sure. They, ha- they would have a vibe, for, for definitely. Because I, I still try to, you know, when I am in a, process of playing many this the piece of music over and over again and trying to get multiple takes i i am still trying to approach it freshly every time mm-hmm. even though i maybe have a performance in mind um but you know i still try to play it like i have it's the first time i'm playing it so right. i try to be free and open my mind to the performance and and that's honestly how you can lead to kind of happy accidents or total train wrecks yeah you know <laughs> they can go either way right um but you know a lot of the stuff was out of necessity because i was doing stuff for people and i didn't have time to sit down and just figure out the editing i didn't have time to do it right so i just give them just play it till i play it right that was the quick and efficient way for me at right. that moment you know i've, I've found the same thing like it, you know do, doing another take is going to take four minutes yes like learning how, how to, to edit. fucking edit it's gonna is going to take weeks t- <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a long time yeah and you know i i have having been a highly edited drummer in a lot of the session work i've done since pro tools has arrived on the scene i can hear that i can i can often hear it you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of a, and I hear it in modern music a lot. You know, I just so that's, I mean, these, these are all like just flawless fucking tracks. It's because yeah. it's been Pro Tools and time aligned and yeah, you can hear it and you can life and you can feel it. Yeah, like, and yeah. It, it's not that it sounds or feels bad. Yeah, it's it, not at all. It's it sounds fine, right? It's, and it, it it even arguably sounds good, but is it 
Is it really good? Right. No, not like now you can hear and feel when something is more untouched. Yeah. When there's a human at work. Yeah. Making yeah. decisions in the yeah. moment. Yeah. In that take. Yeah. I um, like, um, you know, the microsecond differences between performances in terms of a group of musicians playing together. That's yeah. where the mojo is. Yeah. That's where the music is. Because everyone isn't fucking perfect and every lined on. I mean, those are the classic records that we all go back to. That they weren't. That's how they were recorded. Yeah. It's you know, it's the human element, and uh, you know, Pro, though Pro Tools is an incredibly useful tool in a lot of ways, especially when you're under on a budget and have a time constraint and everything. You know what I love about live performance is humans interacting with their instruments, yeah. not them. You know, c you know, completely scrubbed and perfectly aligned right. <laughs> with a computer. Right, and you, you know? talk about budget and time constraint. You know, for <clears throat> yeah. for a lot of us, with like with what you're doing in here, with what I'm doing in my studio. Mm -hmm. You know, some you're, you're often doing it for a friend mm -hmm. or an acquaintance, yeah. and yeah, you yeah. know it's you're getting paid whatever they yeah. can afford, yeah. and yeah. they're like, no rush, I, yeah. I can have it in two weeks. Yeah. So I think often we we put pressure on ourselves to to you know be fucking Vinnie Caluda and yeah, knock yeah. it out in one yeah. take yeah. without really realizing like, listen, time is money in some studios, mm -hmm. but here I've got the time. Yeah, I'm not getting paid any more or less. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's just dig into it and yeah. do it 27 yeah. times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think both approaches, they have their place for sure. Sure. You know, yeah. if you're dealing with some musicians, if you're an engineer or producer and you're dealing with a band that maybe there's some, you know, like the drummer isn't as great as they probably could be, that it really does help, you know, and really does ultimately help the whole thing to, yeah. to get it done and make it sound good. Um, but, what, you know. What you're talking about with, like, you know, <clears throat> getting a good, complete take mm -hmm. um, overlaps really well with, with something we've talked about a ton, which is getting a good sound mm -hmm. through mic placement. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Getting your tuning and your room and yeah, your yeah. mic placement, getting yeah. all that shit right, so yeah. you don't have to fuck around with yeah. plugins. Yeah, we've talked about that a ton, yeah. but you're you're one of the first to just sort of talk about like get a good take, get yeah, a yeah. good complete Me take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Those yeah. two things I think just go yeah. a long way in terms of getting, yeah. uh, you know, a good a good drum performance. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if you're doing it yourself, I mean, if you look around, you can see, I mean, I've got a lot of channels to work with for, mm -hmm. for just for drums and I can, I can scale up or scale down and, you know, obviously keeping it simple, oftentimes, depending on what, you know, what, you, what kind of sound you're going for is a lot of, a lot of times just the best way to do it, yeah. you know? And then, but if you would need to close mic everything and, you know, you know, kind of go for a more modern approach, um, you know, you, you can do that too. Um, but you know, keeping it simple sometimes I think is if you're just engineering and playing yourself is kind of the way to go. It's just less things to think about, yep. you know, less inputs to think about input levels and yada, 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 you yeah. know, all the stuff, less plugins, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I only, I only own and know how to work a few plugins. Yeah. Same here. And I, yeah, I yeah. don't, I don't care to fuck with them very yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was kind of my goal here was to, when I started doing this, it's like, I don't want to spend an insane amount of money, like buying high end mic pre's and, and, uh, and a bunch of plugins. And I just want to be able to give people really good, clean, well-engineered drum tracks that they can manipulate however they yep. want. Yep. Um, you know, I'm not going to give them a bunch of color, give them the basics that they can color themselves. Yep. You know, that's, yep. that's, that's the idea. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah. For most yeah. of us. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I spent some money on some decent, somewhat decent mics, you know? So. Yeah. And I mean, you like the, the other thing I've found is that you, you know, you do have to spend some money. You do have to mm -hmm. have decent mics. Yeah. But 
you don't need to spend a fuckload of money, and you don't yeah. need Cadillac mics. No, you don't need Cadillac so, mics. And honestly, for drums, you don't even need Cadillac converters either. You, know? <laughs> you don't. I mean, the yeah. Focusrite stuff that I have, it's good. I use the same one. Yeah, it's it's good. Yeah. You know, I mean, who, everyone would love to have a bunch of universal audio stuff, but it's cost prohibitive. Right. <laughs> right. And for drums, it's good enough. <laughs> yes, more than more yeah, than yeah. good enough. Yeah. mentioned like the the touring and the tech work mm-hmm. you've done yeah. um and so, so at least some of that has been for ringo yeah so we'll get for, we'll get yeah. to ringo's potatoes in a minute okay but, but talk about your experience uh teching for ringo uh well actually i don't tech for ringo this is the this is the, uh, the big myth myth that i i work on ringo's crew which is true um i don't actually tech for him okay uh, jeff chonis who's been his tech for like 30 plus years is his tech and I deals see. with his stuff every day um i work with Jeff, um, um, I do a little bit of teching for Greg Bissonette. Oh yeah, um, sure. I basically just set up and tear down his kit every day mm-hmm. on tour. Uh, Jeff does all the teching, and he's a wizard. He's so much fun to watch because he's so good and so quick, and has just been doing it forever. Do you know Adam Alisi? Uh, I do not. Adam Alisi is a, a great drummer. Lives in L.A., but yeah. he's he's Greg's. LA oh, okay. tech setup teardown guy. Gotcha, gotcha. No, I have not met him. But, um, you know, so I've been doing that. I've only actually done three tours. The first tour I did was in 2019, and then obviously the pandemic hit, and then we did two tours this last year in 2020, a spring and a summer, a spring and late fall or early fall tour, both of which got bamboozled by COVID. Right, right. <laughs> and I think there's another one that's been booked that's just been announced coming up for uh, this like May and June. Um, so uh, yeah, I wish I could say I'd for Ringo, but no. In fact, I've never even played his drum set. This is like, <laughs> I've sat down behind his kit on stage many, many times, but I have never actually picked up a pair of sticks. Oh, and you should it. do it. Are you? No, I just, you... no, I just feel weird about it. It's just, I just, I mean, I've watched other people do it, but I just kind of feel like that's it's not my place to do that. <laughs> I mean, if, if I asked Jeff, he'd probably say, "Yeah, go ahead." Yeah. But, you know, I'm not going to thrash on it, right? You know, right. But, you know, just to tap on it. But I've never, never played it. So you're on the crew. <laughs> I'm on the crew. Yeah. Do you, Do you have a specific job, or is yeah, it just whatever well, I, needs? I'm kind of like. Um, you know, I mean, in the in the world of touring, it's uh, I like to call it other duties as assigned. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've had official titles. I do the teleprompter, so I'm officially like the teleprompter guy, which okay. is something I've never done before. It's like, you want to go work for Ringo? Sure. <laughs> you going to be the teleprompter guy? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I do the teleprompter for him during the show. But, you know, I'm kind of an assistant stage manager. I do the stuff for Bissonette. Hmm. And then I help get there's a mobile kitchen for Ringo's dinner every night. That's where the baked potato comes from. I, I, I don't cook his dinner every night, but I do actually help get it ready and get it going. I set up the mobile kitchen. I prep stuff. I wow. get, it, get it ready for the actual chef to come in and make his baked potato for him every night. So Ringo <laughs> eats a baked potato every night? Yes, he does. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, it's what? kind of freaking amazing. I mean, he's going to be 83 uh, this June, uh, July, what is it, July 7th, I think. Um, 
he is in amazing shape. He's has amazing amounts of energy. He looks great. Yeah. You know, he's on stage two and a half hours a night. He plays drums. He's working the lip. He's all over the place. He's yeah. got tons of energy. Yeah. He's great. He's super fun. And uh and he's you know, he's had a very, very clean lifestyle for a very, very long time, including mm-hmm. a pretty strict vegan diet. Mm-hmm. And which includes eating a baked potato every night, at least right. show night, you right. know, and some steamed vegetables and all that. Yeah, so I was gonna ask It's all very if, personal information that I, I can get in trouble for. <laughs> but not really. I, I mean it's you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the deep dark secrets of Ringo Starr. Right, right. Really, yeah. The baked potato. <laughs> the baked potato. I was going to ask if it's like a bougie baked potato no. with like all kinds no, of. No, it is organic, but yeah, no, <laughs> but no, it's just a baked potato. Simple, <laughs> simple, small baked potato. Man, yeah, yeah. That that <clears throat> like I I'm I'm super into food and cooking, and that just sounds kind of sad to me. But uh, if, if it's one know, of the reasons he's still in such great shape, yeah, man. You know, then, I think yeah, you know, I mean, he, there's other things he, he eats, but that's that that's sort of the the. The, the focus. The <laughs> Speaking of food, dude, Le Pichet knocked oh, yeah. me on my ass. Isn't that a great place? It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Like, I haven't been there in a while, but oh my yeah, gosh, I yeah. love that place. If, you and, missed out. So they used to have a, they, the people who used to own Le Pichet, because there's actually new owners, uh, the old owners recently retired, um, and, and they had another French place up on Capitol Hill called Cafe Press, which mm-hmm. was brilliant just as brilliant as 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 cafe fresh but kind of more modern you know decor and everything but some similar menu things and that closed and it's gone away and it was really sad but the new owners of cafe press whoever they are have you know decided to sort of keep it the same you know and it's so great it's such a great place to yeah, go. yeah 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 ty was texting me he uh he, he said uh do what did he say do all Mike recommends. You, you are both proper finer things a holes. <laughs> oh God, I don't know about that. I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a foodie by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, there's there's a lot of really amazing restaurants in this town and yeah. uh, that I have never been to. Um, and just you know, Cafe Press is just one of them. That's just I mean, uh, 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 Le Pichet is just it's just it's, it's a special place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Paul Allen thing, okay. I've I've heard a bit about it from Ty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but my my understanding of that gig, if mm-hmm. you want to call it a gig, yeah, it was for a lot of musicians. It was a gig. Yeah, you know, an on call kind of gig. Right. Yeah. So so Paul Allen, the 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 Microsoft uh, billionaire, just sort of had a band travel with him. Yes. In case the mood should strike him to jam. Yes. Is that the long and the short that, of that's it? That's the long and the short of it. Yeah. Because yeah. he's a musician. He's a yeah, guitar yeah, player. He's a guitar player. And yeah. he kind of maintained a, a you know, there was a, a, a group of people that sort of, you know, for his dream factory, he could have musicians on call for wherever he was traveling around the world. He had an infrastructure all over the planet, which has now been dismantled since he has passed away. Right. Where he could kind of play music any time he wanted, pretty pretty much the four corners of the world. Yeah. You know? And uh, and there was an on-call list of musicians to sort of fill, fill a band slot, you know. And he would, you know, he would get enamored with some players and want to use them for a while, and then he would move on to another group of people. And, I mean, this went on for t- 30 years, 20, yeah. 20, 20, for a long time. Wow. Yeah. And I got involved for the last 10 years or so that, you know, Ty and I both did. Right. Um, and I as a started out as a player, playing in the band and it's a lot of chart reading and it's all you know it's all there's actual charts yeah there's charts oh god yeah there's charts for everything yeah yeah wow everything yeah <laughs> it's just a classic rock song songbook you know oh and, and more you know like just lots of different stuff but yeah most all everything's charted right and he, he's a good solid chart reader too actually and i'm not the strongest chart reader in the world which might be one reason why i didn't last very long as a player <laughs> um but you know most of the stuff that we play is like yeah i know that right <laughs> I, I just i just know that i'll just play it right um 
but then I ended up kind of moving more into the sort of the production side of things in his world, uh, helping produce events and whatnot for him, for him. Right. Yeah. And as far as the music went, I mean, it, most of the time it was just literal jams, right? It wasn't like performances. No, they for, would be performances too. I just mean, for friends. And, yeah, for friends. Yeah. You know, who whatever whatever the situation was. You yeah. know, but there, over the years there were actual concerts too. Yeah, that were staged all over the place. You know, the wow. openings of the hard rocks and things like that. And things that I was not involved in. Yeah. Um. You know, I think he put on a couple concerts in Africa. Um, yeah, like Ty went to Africa with yeah, him actually, multiple times. Yeah, he did. I, you apparently I, I, I did, at the, yeah. the airstrip in <laughs> yeah, we Kenya. we can talk about that. <laughs> Ty and I did go to Africa with Paul in 2010. That was the first trip I did. And God, actually, Ty was already on it, yeah. And then uh, I ended up uh, replacing a, the, 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 house, the regular drummer because he ended up having to go home for a, a medical thing. So I ended up jumping on this Africa trip for a month, which was unbelievably cool and amazing. And still this day, I can't believe I spent literally a month on safari in Africa, seeing it through the eyes of a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, and playing music every night, wherever we were, it's in a safari camp, you right. know, <laughs> well, you know, literally Ty and I had to play Africa in Africa one night, <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> which, you know, we giggled our whole way through the whole thing. I'm sure. Oh yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that, that was a crazy experience for sure. You know? I, I, uh, my wife and I did our honeymoon in Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was uh, like nine years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and we were in Venice and Ty happened to be in Venice with Paul yeah, at the yeah. same time. And you yeah. might've been there too. No, I don't think I was. No. Um, I don't think I ever went to Venice. We were Paul. texting, like, I mean, we just found out that, like, hey, we're both here. Yeah. And we were like, oh, my God, we should, like, hook up for a drink or something. And, and Ty was like, okay, let me figure out what Paul is doing and I'll, you know. And a few hours later, he was like, I can't meet you guys. I have to go to the opera. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it was like. I mean, I, I, I did go to Italy with Paul once or twice. I can't remember. Yeah, t once or twice, um, but not not with Ty. Well, the first time I guess was kind of with Ty. It was the start of that Africa trip. It started in, in Italy, but um, yeah, I can't remember how many times. It was a lot over the years. Um, actually, maybe three times. But uh, you know, you know, I got like Rome and Sicily, and uh, you know, ne never went to. I mean, I've been to venice but i didn't go with paul but that's what it would be like like one one time i you know and ended up seeing like bolshoi lead ballet at in Terramina. there's this amazing greco-roman amphitheater in Terramina in sicily and uh and just got to go watch some ballet for three nights in a row <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? the, the the whims the whims of a billionaire the whims of a billionaire yeah, <laughs> exactly and it was you know it was cool he's he was a great guy the world the world is going to miss him i mean his his uh uh, his love for art and music and the way he spent his money around that. Yes. Definitely, especially in this town. Cause I mean, he was a, he was a big philanthropist and, and even just in Seattle, but around the world, he gave a lot of money away and, and supported yep. a lot of really amazing causes. Yep. You know, um, I'm, I'm, it's on my list to go to the museum of pop culture oh, yeah, yeah. here, which is basically Paul's just big collection of cool shit. Yeah. Right? It's his collection of cool stuff. Yeah. All this, <laughs> the sci-fi museum stuff, the music stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing, uh, collection of stuff. And in fact, a lot of it's kind of stored away these days. It's not even on display, like the original, mo uh, EMP stuff. Wow. Um, but you know, there's, I haven't actually, I haven't been there in a while, but, uh, it's, yeah, you should definitely go. Definitely go. Cool. 
Um, you mentioned in a in a text that like you were going to spend a few hours this week doing your your contractor day gig. Oh yeah, and yeah, is yeah. that so? Is that contractor as in like construction or yes. contract? Really construction? Yeah, cool. Yeah. I wish it was more like tech oriented. Sit at a desk <laughs> and punch a keyboard. At this age, no, it's more manual labor, uh, construction work. I've been doing that for years between tours. That that's just been like a side hustle for yeah. you. It was a side hustle for years, and then the pandemic happened, and it became my job. Yeah, I, so many of us. <laughs> yeah. like, like, uh, just sort of like relied on whatever side hustle we had yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was lucky because in a lot of respects, because a lot of friends didn't have a side, side hustle. They could upscale quickly like I did to, yeah. to survive and I did all right. You know, I mean, yeah. I beat the crap out of my body in the last three years, but, uh, I'm sure. yeah, but, uh, it definitely, uh, saved my butt for sure, for sure. Yeah. You know? So is, is that something that you, like, it sounds like you've done it sort of on and off mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Is it something you want to phase out or is it just sort of like something you like doing and, and don't well, mind having as part of your income stream? And uh, it's a little of both. I mean, I'm a little burnt out on it, having done it so much in the last three sure. or four years. Yeah, yeah. And definitely take a break, but it also is lucrative. And it's not like I've got a drumming gig that's going to take make up that money. So I kind of got to stick with it for the time being. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I would kind of like to phase it out and do something else, but probably not right away. Well, and going back to <laughs> going back to how your priorities have changed mm-hmm. over the pandemic, like you say, you don't have a big drumming gig. I so- would love to have one. You got one for me? <laughs> <laughs> I will I will keep my ear to the ground. But has it has it caused you to turn down some drumming or music work that you're not particularly interested in doing? Uh over the years, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely, you know. I mean, the teching stuff also I I've been doing such a such a large amount of it <clears throat> over the years, you know. I mean, recently obviously working for Ringo, but <clears throat> been working for Ben Harper for his drummer Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um you know, doing, I've stage managed the experience Hendrix tour since 2007. And that's, you know, how I ended up working for Mitch Mitchell, but I've also teched for Chris Layton and, uh, uh, William Calhoun, Carrie Aaron, Kenny Aronoff, um, uh, Tim Austin, who was uh, buddy guys drummer. who's now passed away. I worked for him for a while. Wow. Worked for a lot of drummers doing the experience Hendrix thing. And, and, uh, um, obviously, in the early days, I worked for the President of the United States of America. I was their stage manager and tech for their drummer, Jason. That was kind of like got my foot in the door in the mid-90s. I sort of really split my personality of like, I'm going to go work for this platinum-selling band that are good friends of mine and still play in bands at, when I'm home and mm-hmm. still tour, actually, as a player. And I did that for most of the second half of the 90s, was splitting my time between the Presidents and, and the bands I was playing in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both my, my co-host Matt and I, and, and a bunch of the other people we've talked to, um, have found that there, you know, there's, there's the, there's sort of the pride that comes from just like making a living playing drums. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what the game yeah, or is. just, yeah. Staying in the music business, which is what I wanted to do. So, right. You know, right. It's the production stuff. But we've, we've all found that if, if you can figure out a way to, to not have to rely on that and yeah. be able to say no to stuff that yeah. you don't want to do. Yeah. You know, there's there's the pride that comes from making a living playing drums, but yeah. there's also like your relationship with the yeah. drums and yeah. with music. Yeah, and I've definitely gone more of that route, not not having to take the gigs right. because I needed the money. It's just I take the gigs because I want the gigs. Yes, um, for sure. And that's that's that is that has been a byproduct of doing the production stuff to make a living doing the contracting stuff to make a living and not mm-hmm. having to rely on performance stuff so much to make a living. Yeah. And when the sessions come in that I get that pay a little extra or, or, or a gig comes in that pays it, it's a bonus, yep. you know? Yep. Um, Cause yeah, back to my earlier experience when I was really young, I mean, I did, I did it for a long time yeah. as a, 
actual touring professional musician. I could call myself that when I was in my early twenties, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and I got a good front row seat of the benefits and the downsides of it. You know, learning to rely on it too much, you know, because yeah. it does not last forever. Right. <laughs> so right. Maybe you have to diversify at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like I said, as as I'm getting to you know 2023 and turning 53, 55 this week, it's like. I want to play more. I want to play more. I want mm-hmm. to actually maybe take it seriously and, and you know, even a touring gig, you know, if it's yeah. out there. I'll be a sideman. I'll be a salaried sideman if it's the right situation and the right fit. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Totally do it. I um, have a lot of experience. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Yeah. And so, like, going back to what you mentioned earlier about sort of, like, how you value yourself. Yeah. Um, like, how, do, how does that factor moving forward as you're looking at sort of like reprioritizing playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you realize, I realize that, you know, I, if I want to do this and, and I probably have to do things for less money than I want to, mm-hmm. to, to do them, to get the experience, which is again, back to the same thing that happens when you're young. It's like, you're just excited to be there and, right. you know, <laughs> pretty him and drink tickets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I never actually just did that, but you know, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to, to find your value and also, there's not a lot of money at, in a performance level unless you're at a certain level. Yeah. If you can walk into a gig like that, you know, it's, it takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work. There's paying your dues. And, you know, I mean, I feel like I've done a lot of paying my dues, but that doesn't mean anything. And in, in reality of finding something that is, that's a good fit and, you know, is going to pay your way through life. Yeah. You know, it's very, very few and far between and even less so now. And the yeah. music business is so massively different than it was in my day you know right. when i was when i was young and and you know rock and roll is kind of a young man sport and and it's i watched younger bands and it's hard you know they don't have the kind of resources even if they have an audience even if they've got something you know even yeah. if they have some kind of audience that can buy their records or streams or whatever it's just there's just not a lot of money yeah you know and it's very very expensive <laughs> yeah and it takes it takes so much legwork a ton of legwork like i was uh, i forgot who i was talking to recently but they <clears throat> they were talking about some band they were in and uh mentioned that they were touring like uh i asked him what kind of venues they were doing and and he was like oh you know like you know three three hundred four hundred seaters yeah and he wasn't shitting on that but yeah, yeah. He, he was saying like that's kind of small potatoes compared to an arena tour yeah, yeah. and I was like I don't <clears throat> think people realize how much legwork it takes to get 300 motherfuckers exactly to see your band exactly <laughs> and and the tragedy is that it, it seems to me that even at that level if you can go anywhere in the United States or anywhere in Europe right now and attract that size of crowd it still isn't enough money to make, yeah. to sustain itself to to pay for all your expenses and pay everybody. Right, there's just not enough money, especially if you've got more than like two people in your band. Exactly, <laughs> and you know, and and you know, back in the day, um, that was enough. You could actually, you know, keep your thing going. You mm-hmm. could actually make a little bit of money at that level of of audience. You know, you could. You know, they bought your records. They came to your shows. They bought your T-shirts. Whatever it was, it was a you could sustain that, and you could build off of that. Right. It's almost I mean you can kind of compare it to the you know the, the disappearance of the middle class in America. The middle class of musicians <laughs> yeah. has also slipped. That's know, massively. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the middle has hollowed the out. Middle either is totally hollowed out. Either you're scrounging yeah. or you've fucking you, made it, or if you've <laughs> made it, and, and if or you're you know you have investors. You have yeah. you have you know you're 
whatever a rich kid or have somebody that's investing in your band right and you see a lot of that a lot you know a lot of people that because it is it takes capital investment to invest in say a touring band yeah and you know how to raise that money comes from a lot of different places mm -hmm. and it used to be you could just make it yourself if you got to a certain level right that at that level it, it's not sustainable anymore yeah you know that's capitalism at work yeah <laughs> you know yeah and hollowing out the middle yeah and i mean speaking of that like <clears throat> You know, there, there's been a, a lot, a lot said about um, the changes that Seattle and the Pacific Northwest have gone through mm -hmm. as a result of the tech boom, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, there are lists everywhere of the things that are worse. Yeah, as a result. Oh yeah, yeah. Is there cost anything? of living? <laughs> sure, of course. It's the basic cost of living. As a lifelong resident of this place, mm -hmm. is there anything that's better than it used to be? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm not sure, <laughs> honestly. Well, you know, we do have better restaurants, <laughs> but you have to. That, that not you, everybody can afford. Not everyone can afford. I mean, yeah. I can't afford to go. You know, enjoy all those all the time. Right. Um, uh, gosh. Um, well, you know. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of the music venues are better. I think mm. they're better run. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously from a technical standpoint, it's just better stuff. Yeah. The present, pre presentation of live music in the city is better than it's ever been. We have mm. state-of-the-art clubs that we didn't have before. Um, and that's that's a positive. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a bigger infrastructure that's that's still pretty tight-knit. You know, there's there's a thing that, uh, you know, there's a... There's a farm league, you know, that you can work your way through. Yeah. Um, that is, that's, it's, you know, it still works and it's, it's, it's productive, you know, there's, yeah. there's people that care about it. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's a, there's a very good group of uh, people that are involved in promoting music and arts in this town that do a very good job of it. Mm -hmm. they're, and they're really compassionate. They're really passionate about it. And, uh, and there's, there's some money there, you know? Yeah. So that's interesting. Cause I mean, it, you, I, I'm thinking back to what it must've been, you know, in the late eighties and early nineties. Mm -hmm. And it must've been just the fucking wild West. A little bit. Yeah. But it just, shit didn't cost so much, you know, to make a record. I mean, studio time was your biggest expense, you know, right. and there were record labels, small labels here that had small budgets that could get your records pressed and get them, get, you know, a distribution, you know, the old way we used to do it with brick and mortar stores. Right. There was, there was a lot of that. Um, but what I hear you saying mm -hmm. is that nowadays it's um, like the the care and feeding of the Seattle scene, mm -hmm. yeah. whether it's the grunge thing or the hip hop thing yeah. or the, what was the thing you mentioned? Uh, the new, uh, oh, like the psych thing. You know? Psych. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like the Seattle th scene is just sort of run and cared for by um, serious adults. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we have some amazing uh, uh organizations here you know we have like uh the kxb the radio station mm -hmm. which actually paul allen kind of put into business with his investment with their online streaming stuff years yeah. ago um and they're a huge player in this town for music and internationally too you know they really they they've have the power to break artists internationally now which is crazy considering that it started out in a tiny room in the university of washington you know it's a <laughs> college radio station you know when i first went there um and then, you know, Sub Pop, the record label, has grown exponentially from what it used to be. And, yeah. and they are still a very big player and uh, completely have diversified their what they do, what they release, what they focus their, their you know, stuff on. Mm -hmm. uh, and they support a lot of local artists still. Um, 
gosh, there's a ton. There's the Vera Project, which is a, a, ven, a all ages venue just right up the street here where we're at right now, um, <clears throat> which is really supportive for younger people that are interested in the music business and a creative life for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's more, but just it's pretty amazing the infrastructure that we have. That's I would say that would be better. That's, yeah, that's it's, it better. sounds like um, the audience is bigger too, right? Even though you know, since the pandemic stuff is sort of. Um, eased we're not really starting to see the numbers that we used to see in terms of attendance for venues for specific you know like people we're not really seeing like a a full recovery of an audience that used to go see shows right and go out every night or, right. you know whatever night of the week that to go see stuff yeah it's coming back but it's not we're not at pre-pandemic numbers yet that's what i hear yeah people talking about it you know it's interesting you talk <clears throat> about the like the um, the money and the support mm-hmm. that's here for mm-hmm. the for the music scene, yeah. and it it sounds like and feels like there's there's a lot of money, a lot of support, and it's very well run. Without yeah. it, doesn't feel corporate. No, no, it doesn't. It feels actually. local. It's, it it is feels still organic. Very, yeah, it is, it, there's still a lot of that for sure. There's yeah. still a lot of yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I um, I'm playing almost every night that that I'm here, and I yeah. hope to get out to see something <laughs> what time are you generally done uh like ten thirty or 11 yeah you know th- there is late night stuff that happens you'd have to run and go see stuff because usually right. the last sets are 11 or midnight yeah i mean this used to, back in the day this was ridiculous this town was a 10 11 12 you know three sets a night in the clubs 10 11 last set was at midnight yeah they don't do that anymore because people just can't take the late nights so i, I can't is, most nights yeah, <laughs> yeah, mo- it's, it's mostly like 8 9 10 or 9 10 11 set yeah. times for three band bills in fact i'm playing tonight on a two only a two band bill but it's at 9 30 i'm playing it yeah night. where are you playing tonight i'm playing at the sunset tavern in ballard tonight Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I got an aunt and uncle who live in Ballard. Oh, cool. uh, I'm going to spend a couple days with them next week. Nice. Um, but what, like, what is the gig tonight? Tonight is a band that I have been playing in for almost 20 years wow. called Sergeant Major. Um, <laughs> it is the, uh, it's the band that the, uh, another band I used to play in in the nineties called the Fastbacks. Um, it's, uh, sort of the, oh, yeah, the right next there. band after that. Yeah. We were on Sub Pop. There's our Sub Pop yeah, poster. Yeah. Kurt oh, cool. and I, uh, Kurt was the main songwriter for the Fastbacks and he's the main songwriter for Sergeant Major. And this is a bit of a reunion. We haven't had a show in many many years and we've had a few different singers over the last 20 years so tonight is it's a reunion gig for the 20th anniversary and all three singers we have are going to play together we actually rehearsed in here last night and we've kind of rearranged all the songs and you know they're splitting verses and harmonizing with each other and it's actually kind of cool so it's a a version of this band that has never existed before that's great that's great (laughs) and it's all definitely in the kind of pop punk sort of vein of music you know it's a lot of singing a lot of harmony melody and and fast tempos and stuff it's fun yeah yeah cool man Well, I'll let you get to it. All right. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you, too. Great meeting you, man. Yeah, and, cheers. Uh, good luck. Thank you. Good luck to yourself, too. There you go. Mike Musburger, killer drummer, kind-hearted dude, and just Seattle through and through in all the best ways. Thanks to him for being such a gracious host, and thanks to Ty Bailey for hooking us up. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview with Brady Blade. Yes, he is of that Blade family. He is the brother of Brian Blade, and he is also a drummer. While his brother is obviously part of the New York jazz world, Brady has made his way in rock, pop, and country and resides in Stockholm, Sweden. That should be a super interesting talk. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.